This December, this Advent season, uh, we here at St. Andrews have been working through Matthew chapter 1. And if you're joining us today, uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, But Matthew chapter 1 is mostly a genealogy. It's mostly a great big list of people who eventually lead to a man called Joseph. And not to ruin the surprise for you, but eventually lead to Jesus as well. And I completely understand if the the thought of looking at a genealogy doesn't sound very interesting. I understand that. But if you've been here for these messages, like I think I'm right in saying that these have been surprisingly significant messages for understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Is that fair to say for those of you who have been here? Yeah. And I called this series Jesus' Family Tree, and today... Uh, We are, in a sense, at the top of the tree. We are getting to where it's all been leading to. We arrive at Jesus and his birth. And let's read together the end of Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word to us. And I had an interesting... Don't want to break the moment, but I forgot something. There are some packs for kids right down the back. Sally's got them. If the kids are interested, uh, those are available down there. I had an interesting moment last week. I was at a Christmas gathering, not a not a church Christmas gathering, and it highlighted for me how easy it is to completely miss the point of something. Now, to be fair, we all do this at times. We all miss the point. Uh, and my wife, Robin, reminds me of this from time to time uh, when she points out that I missed the point for several months before realizing that she might like me. We need to keep our eyes and ears open, don't we? We don't want to miss something important. But I was at this Christmas gathering last week, and some kids were performing several songs, and one of the songs they sung was Away in the Manger. And they sung it really well. Actually, it might have been one of the the songs they sung best of all. 
and many of the parents joined in with them as they sung it. And I know I'm a pastor, so you've got to understand I see everything with God glasses on, so to speak. But I'm there and I'm listening to these kids sing away in the manger and the the adults joining in and they sing the line, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. And as they sung it, I looked around at them and realized that none of them were actually conscious of what they were singing. Oh, they were singing it. They were, they were saying it. The words were coming out of their mouth, but none of them were conscious of it. And I a little bit wanted to, to stop them and ask, sorry, little who lay down their head? It's not little baby Jesus lay down his sweet head. It's little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Who's Lord? Now, I didn't do that because that would be really awkward, wouldn't it? And unfortunately, Jesus is only a character in a a catchy seasonal song for them. It is so easy to miss the point, even with Christmas, even with Jesus, even when it's right in front of us, even when actually the words are coming out of our own mouth, we can still miss the point. But God really doesn't want us to miss the point of his son. He really doesn't. You know, the very first verse in the book of Matthew, Matthew 1 verse 1, says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 1 of the New Testament lays out for us that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew wants us to know this first. And and Messiah is probably not a title we use very often, but it means the anointed one or the the chosen one of God. Verse 1, first statement about Jesus, he is the Messiah. We should have big expectations about him. He's not like everyone else, actually. But as I said earlier, Matthew chapter 1 is largely a genealogy. Matthew is connecting God's promises to Abraham and to David with Jesus. And part of the way Matthew does that is by showing that they are physically connected. These people are physically connected. Jesus is a descendant of theirs. But Matthew is also trying to show more than that. He's trying to show us that that Jesus is God's answer to the promises he made to Abraham and to David. But Matthew also does more than that with this genealogy. Matthew wants us to connect as well that Jesus is God's answers to their problems, to our problems. And Matthew does this in an unexpected way. He draws a connection out for us. He includes five women in Jesus' genealogy. Includes a lot of guys, but the woman are highlighted for us. And I've mentioned some of these women earlier in this series, but actually it's only now at the end of the genealogy that I get to connect all the dots together. So the first woman that Matthew mentions in his genealogy of Jesus is Tamar. Tamar comes from Genesis 38. And as Matthew mentions her name, we're pointed towards a story where Judah, a descendant of Abraham, 
uh, slept with Tamar, who was his widowed daughter-in-law. He slept with her thinking she was a prostitute. Now, if that last couple of sentences sounds like a whole lot of wrong going on, that's completely accurate. That is what went on. A whole lot of wrong. And this story is, is really blunt, but it's really honest. It's really blunt and honest about the sin and wickedness of Abraham's descendants. Actually, it doesn't focus on Tamar so much. It focuses on Judah. In that story, Judah actually at the end of it says, oh, Tamar is more righteous than I am. <laughs> and he's right, <laughs> just because he's that wicked. And the, Tamar's story, though, raises a few questions for us. If the descendants of Abraham are so wicked, will God be faithful to his promises to them? If the descendants of Abraham sin like this, can these people be redeemed? Can they be saved? How can God keep his promises to them if they're like this? Next up is Rahab. Rahab is also an interesting name to drop into Jesus' genealogy. Rahab wasn't from Israel. In fact, she was a Canaanite, an enemy of Israel. Uh, Plus, she led a fairly immoral life. She was a prostitute. Again, another really interesting story to have pointed out to us. But despite all of these issues, Rahab's story is, is one of an immoral foreigner, an enemy of God's people, coming to faith in God and being included. In fact, Rahab is held up to us as an example of faith in God, and she and her family are included in Israel and included in Jesus' family tree. Now, sin is incredibly serious. Incredibly serious. The reason the Canaanite people were largely wiped out is because of their sin. But even then, God was rescuing some of them despite their sin because they trusted in him, because they had faith in him. And then there is Ruth, who, like Rahab, also wasn't an Israelite. Ruth was a Moabite, which is to say she was an outsider as well. Now, Ruth wasn't a prostitute like Rahab, just to be clear. But Ruth was involved in some, well, involved in a somewhat sexually charged situation. And I know it probably sounds like you've been really cryptic there, Mike. Uh, but you can go and read the story in the Bible. And I, But I'm, I'm not picking on Ruth and saying that she... How do I put this? She did more than catch Boaz's eye. Let me put it that way. She she caught him and reeled him in. You can read the story. And perhaps Boaz was a bit like me and slow to see what was actually going on. He picked it up, though. But the point of Ruth's story is that she is an example of faith and trust in God. And Ruth's story, which was a which was about death and about loss, and about bitterness, actually ends up as an incredible story of redemption, and life, and joy. She had lost, her husband had died, there was no hope for the future, she thought they were going to suffer, and then, then amazingly, God brings along a redeemer. Someone who marries her, and gives her a son, and this family, this family is saved. 
And it's this family that leads us to Jesus. And then in the list there is Bathsheba, a woman who is not called by name in Jesus' genealogy, but is instead just called the wife of Uriah. Oh, and the wife of King David, which is a pointed way of saying she was the wife of two men, which is a pointed way of saying or asking the question, how does that happen? Now, it doesn't happen well, is the answer. David committed adultery with her and then murdered her husband, which is really not what's meant to be done. The inclusion of her name reminds us that King David, this great king in Israel's history, was also someone who committed adultery and committed committed murder. He was also someone who abused his power as the king. And this, again, raises several questions for us. Will God keep his promise to David despite this serious sin? How how can God keep his promise to David in the face of sin like this? How is there hope for anyone when David, the best king of Israel, does these terrible things? Now, I said there were five women in Jesus' family tree. I've only got four here. Who's the last one? Yeah, Mary, you're getting it. And Matthew is connecting some dots here. Again, I'm not ignoring the guys, but Matthew is highlighting these women, which leads us to the last one, to Mary. And Mary shares some things in common with the woman before her, but has some differences as well. Like all the rest of the women in this list, Mary has a question of sexual immorality hanging over her. As we heard in our reading this morning, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Yeah, that's a bit like saying they're engaged, but it's more than that. It's more. Engagement in biblical times was really serious. It was it was legally binding. That's why in our reading, when Joseph finds out that she is pregnant, and he presumes she's been unfaithful, he decides to divorce her. He can't just walk away. He actually has to give her a divorce. Now, we know that Mary hasn't done anything wrong, but God's law was clear about it. She should be divorced. And even in our small passage that we heard, we can feel Joseph's sadness and indeed love over his unfaithful, as he thinks, fiancée. Joseph is a faithful man, so he settles on divorcing Mary, but he doesn't want to hurt her, so he'll do it quietly. And that shows love, doesn't it? Even when Joseph has good reason to be bitter, he doesn't want to hurt her. And in steps God to clear things up, and they need clearing up, because Joseph doesn't understand the situation. And an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and commands him, tells him, to take Mary as his wife, because she hasn't broken God's law. Instead, this is God's plan, God's doing, and here, here is where we come to the point. Here is where all of the genealogy and all of the questions it raises will be answered. The angel tells Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, the name Jesus means God saves or God is 
salvation. And that's the point. This baby, this birth, this life is all about God saving his people from their sins, saving Judah and Tamar, saving Rahab the prostitute, saving King David the adulterer and murderer, saving Ruth the outsider, and saving you and I. You know, even after Joseph took Mary as his wife, the community they lived in would have been able to do the maths. They would have. They would have known that the timing of Mary's pregnancy was off. They would have known that either Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph or Joseph and Mary had been unfaithful. And I wonder what it was like for Mary and Joseph to live with those questions, those assumptions hanging over them. Imagine how tricky it would be for them to explain it if someone brought it up. Well, actually, it's God, the Holy Spirit, and there was an angel in a dream. Imagine having to explain that. But the reality was that this unexpected and shame-covered birth was actually God's long-planned solution to deal with our sin and shame. And I heard someone say it recently, that the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. Let me say that again. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. And that come for includes us. Do we get that God doesn't just want Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba, but that he wants us as well? He has come for us as well. That even though he knows, he knows all, all of our sin and shame, he doesn't run away, he doesn't divorce us, he doesn't flinch. No, he comes to bear our sin and shame so that we may come to him. That's the point. And we didn't miss it. Let's come to him now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, sometimes I think we like to hold Christmas at at a distance. We like to focus on the shepherds and the angel and the star and the wise men. Because if we look at the heart of Christmas, the heart of the reason why you sent your son to indeed be born and to live and to die, it gets to our hearts. It gets to the wickedness in our hearts that within us we know we are sinners. We know that there is shame before you. And we want to look away. It's easier to look away because we don't know what to say or do. We'd rather just hide it. But you don't. You don't. You know it all. You know everything about us. Every wicked thought, every wicked word, you know it all. And yet you come to us. You come all the way 
to us, you would step towards us and not only speak to us, but give your life for us. Yes, you, you would come and save us from our sin. Jesus, may we look at you for who you truly are. May we sing about you for who you truly are and what you have truly done for us. Because it is only then, only then we get the point. Only then that we understand you. Only then that we understand Christmas and only then, only then that we can know your great love for us, that we can know your mercy and compassion towards us. Yes, yes, Lord, the depths of your grace and mercy towards me, towards all of us, that you would come and take my sin, our sin, upon yourself, that you might take the rest of us as well. Because you would have us as your brothers and sisters. You would have us as your sons and daughters. This is too good to be true, but it is. It's wondrous, Lord. All too easily I gloss over it. I say it so quickly. I sing it so fast. And yet it is true. It is true for me, and it is true for us. And I pray that we can take this truth out into this world and make you known. I pray this in your name, Jesus, the name above every name, the name in which we live. Amen.